Please bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess that if you do not move and work right now, then this sermon is just a lecture. It's just an intellectual exercise. And so we ask that it would not be that, that you would move and that you would work through the preaching of your word, that you would open eyes and that you would save and that your son would be glorified in all that we do now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as mentioned, we're returning to our intermittent sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. So I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be right at the beginning of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. We do ask that you turn there so that you can have the text in front of you at all times, so that we can refer back to it as we make our way through. I have two aims in the sermon this morning. The first is to clarify our understanding of Satan's activity in this world and its relationship to sin, especially the sin of unbelief. And two, to muster our church's response, to muster Grace Covenant Baptist's response. What shall we do? How shall we counter How can we stand against the one whom Paul calls the God of this present age? So let's read together and then consider our way through this text. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to start in verse 3. We're going to start in verse 3, and then we'll work our way both forward and backward. Verse 3 says, this hypothetical, Paul introduces, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul had a lot of detractors. We've seen this already as we've considered 2 Corinthians. We're going to see more of it as we make our way through the book. Paul had a lot of people who criticized his ministry. One of the criticisms that was aimed at Paul was, look, Paul's preaching is rejected by so many people, especially Jews, especially his own people. So it must be false. Paul's just this marginal, crazy person. You ignore him. But Paul says, no, you need Corinthians. You need to understand this about ministry. You need to understand this about the gospel. The reason the gospel is rejected, if it is rejected, is not because it isn't true. 
It is because of the spiritual state of the one rejecting the message. They are perishing. To my ears, that's a rather sterile old way to say that. I don't know if the word perishing sounds powerful to you. I think like perishable goods. No, it's, we're perishing. In English, it, that, that did used to be a much stronger word. So you, you don't want to miss the bluntness, the, the drama of what is being said here. They are being destroyed. They're dying. They're dying. The people who reject the gospel are dying. And not in the we're all dying kind of way. Well, we're all perishable. No, the people who reject the gospel are under an imminent spiritual threat. They're on a path, not just towards death, but towards the second death. Jesus said in John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son will not perish. They, They won't die. He said again in John 10, I give my people eternal life. They shall not die. And he didn't mean they wouldn't die physically. And he told them that they would die physically. He told them that they would be put to death. Obviously, he didn't mean they wouldn't die physically. He meant they wouldn't be subject to this second death. It's not a word game. This is a clear, repeated teaching in Scripture. There is a second death. Paul will say just a moment later in chapter 4, we can be struck down and not perish. We can be killed but not really killed. Killed but not destroyed. There is an afterlife, and it's not just continued existence. There is a new life, a, a restoration life that is coming. And the second death is to be excluded from that. The second death is, is final separation from God and His goodness. And the first death is just a picture. When we die, it's a warning. It's an image, a type of what is to come, separation from life and goodness. Those who reject the gospel are on that path. They are dying. They're going to be destroyed in the final judgment. They're on their way to suffer the wrath of God, the eternal fires of hell. They are the very subject of the image and the warning that Jesus gave. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is an imminent, eternal threat to every single person that rejects Jesus Christ. Like those that the Tower of Siloam fell on and crushed to death, smashed, pulverized, turned into bloody corpses. Jesus warned, unless you repent, you will likewise die. If you reject the gospel, you're standing underneath a toppling tower of brick and stone right before it comes crashing down gruesomely on top of you. Rejection of the gospel is not merely intellectual or cultural or a matter of personal preference. Rejection of Jesus is a sign of spiritual death. Elgin is is, is full of people, probably in this room at this very moment, who are dying because the gospel is veiled to them. They are headed for destruction and they don't know it. We must never forget the stakes. But this raises a question. Because Paul brings up Satan in verse 4. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the God of this world, the God of this age. To use, he's talking about Satan, to use such an impactful title for Satan is to acknowledge his relative power and authority. Satan's not like the cartoon sketch, a little baby in red pajamas with horns and a a silly-looking tail. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, He would command the fear and the hearts and the minds of all who walk on earth. He even coveted the worship of the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, can you imagine? Satan, he knew exactly who Jesus was, and he still tried to get Jesus to bow down to him. I mean, his temptation of the Lord was utterly, totally futile, but it didn't stop him from trying. Satan, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the one who would be God, the ancient powerful dragon, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. We're not just facing an intellectual conundrum. We're not just facing questions of how we should do ministry in a way that is appealing and enticing or that speaks to the mind. We don't just need to figure out how to most persuasively present the gospel. In confronting unbelief, we are reckoning with real, imposing, dark, spiritual power. So here's my question. When Paul says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers... What's he talking about? Particularly, I wonder, which comes first? A person's unbelief or Satan's blinding activity? Right? Does Satan's blinding, or does a person's unbelief make them susceptible to Satan's blinding? Or does Satan's blinding result in a person's unbelief? You, you see the question that I'm asking. I mean, that question implies a further question. Is Satan the one who is ultimately culpable for people being sent to hell? And if he is, how is God loving or just to destroy people who have been blinded by Satan? Doesn't that mean they're victims of the devil? Why why punish the victims? So we're going to answer this question biblically, and we'll do it by moving in sort of concentric circles of Scripture. First, we'll consider some of the wider biblical witness that we have in the four Gospels. Then we'll look at some comments, other comments that Paul has made with regard to Satan and our sin in in his letters. And finally, we'll look at a a closely parallel passage in the letter to the Thessalonians where Paul mentions Satan. So we'll kind of three levels as we try to answer this question, making our way through Scripture. In the Gospels, Jesus discusses the relationship between Satan and unbelievers. He does this in the parable of the seeds, you remember. Uh, This parable is actually recorded in in all three of the synoptics. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. And in the parable, Jesus is illustrating four different types of response, four different types of ways that people respond to his message, to his gospel. Now, if you remember the parable, we actually preached through one of them, but if you remember, there's an asymmetry in it, right? It's not that there are four totally different classes of response to the gospel. Really, there are only two. There's belief and unbelief. The first three that Jesus illustrates are all different species of unbelief, different ways that unbelief looks uh, in this world. 
all di- different types of, of unbelief that will eventually result in the second death. Only the final seed is an example of saving faith. Now, when Jesus explains the parable and the meaning of each picture, he mentions Satan in connection with that first seed, that first picture. The seed that fell on the rocky ground and then was eaten by birds. And Jesus said that this represented those who hear the word, but then Satan comes and he snatches it away. And each of the preserved accounts of Jesus' explanation provide a slightly different emphasis when it comes to Satan's activity here. Mark, the shortest and most abbreviated gospel, Satan is said to immediately take the word away. That's what, what Mark says. Immediate, Satan immediately takes the word away. There's this response that Mark emphasizes. There are some who hear the gospel and, it's, they, and they never entertain it. From our perspective, it's, it's, it's done, right? They, there's no uh, chance. They never have any interest, never make any pretense of belief. It's swift activity of Satan. In Luke, the verbiage specifically says that Satan is trying to prevent belief. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now on its own, this may sound like the person was neutral and passive even. And Satan's activity totally stopped any possibility of belief. But in Matthew, we get the longest version of the account. We get the fullest description. And there Jesus says that Satan takes away the word when one does not understand it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So there's a, there's a lack of understanding we see in Matthew, that precedes, that comes before Satan's taking away. That's what it makes it possible for Satan to come and take the word away. They didn't understand it. And in Jesus' explanation, to understand means more than just to apprehend mentally, to, to get it. Right? At the end of the parable, Jesus uses the same word as shorthand for believe, accept, wholeheartedly embrace, and so bear fruit. As he said, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So in Matthew's gospel, it's clear that there is a, a lack of belief before Satan comes and snatches the word away. I think we're on good ground to say that in the case of our text here in 2 Corinthians, Satan blinds the minds of those who are already unbelievers, meaning that the unbeliever, the non-believer, does the primary act, and Satan's blinding is secondary. The reason Satan is able to blind them is because they did not first believe. But we can further make this case by narrowing to the sort of next concentric circle of biblical teaching. We'll look at what Paul says elsewhere about sin and its relationship to Satan. Particularly, Paul says in Ephesians 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were walking, Paul says, following Satan, not being dragged, kicking and screaming. We were happily going after him, as he says, carrying out the desires, the desires of the body and mind by our very nature, children of wrath. We weren't being strung along. We wanted to go with Satan. And then the kind of final circle for consideration is a closely parallel statement that Paul makes in the second letter to the Thessalonians. He's using similar language about perishing. He's talking about uh, a coming work of Satan, and he says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Satan's deception in 2 Thessalonians comes because the people refused to love the truth and so be saved. He didn't deceive them and so they couldn't love the truth. They didn't want to love the truth and so then he came and deceived them. No one can blame their evil, their moral failings, including their failure to believe the gospel, which is the greatest moral failing we can have the ultimate moral offense, no one can blame that on Satan's activity. No one will be able to say on Judgment Day, Satan made me do it. Satan's blinding activity is not mitigating evidence in our favor. It does not absolve us. Satan doesn't make us love our sin. That's, that's an affection thing. That, that's our own wiring. Satan didn't make us liars. He didn't make us thieves. Satan didn't make us adulterers. He doesn't make us murderers. And Satan didn't make us idolaters. He didn't make us unbelievers. That's who we are in our sin. He exploits it, but he doesn't originate it. Satan tempted Adam and Eve. He deceived them, but they ate the fruit because they wanted it. Well then, what is the blinding of Satan? If it isn't the ultimate root cause of unbelief, if it's something Satan does in response to unbelieving hearts, what is it? I mean, at one level, Satan's activity can be described as preventing belief, right? That, that's the way it was described in Luke's gospel. It prevents belief. So how do we put those biblical pieces together? We are ultimately at fault for our unbelief, but Satan does a blinding activity in order to prevent belief. Here's how I think it Best is said. Here's how it comes together. Satan's blinding activity is activity that is meant to keep the unbeliever in their unbelief. Satan doesn't make them not believe, but when someone is in rebellion to their creator, Satan does everything in his power to keep them in rebellion. When someone does not know Jesus, Satan runs interference to keep them from ever meeting him. Satan's blinding activity is everything that he does to keep people in unbelief. Not the ultimate root cause of unbelief. That's their own heart, their own desires. But Satan knows he has a foothold and he uses his power and authority to prevent blind people from seeing Jesus. I mean, there are a number of ways that we can see Satan blinds. We can see Satan's blinding activity. By way of example, I have four here, but this is not an exhaustive list, just what comes to mind. He distracts with competing pleasures. Satan would rather have us obsessed with 
Sex, money, power, food, leisure. Much rather have us obsessed with those things than contemplating the Lord Jesus. So he maneuvers. And he doesn't even have to distract us with illicit pleasures, right? Sure, yeah, he can use porn and drugs and drunkenness. And oh, how, yes, how hard it is to call a criminal or an addict out of that life to trust in Jesus. But Satan uses plenty of illicit pleasures too. He appeals to our appetites. I mean, how often is our evangelism hampered by the indulgence of simple, non-sinful pleasures? And you want to evangelize a friend or neighbor, but they just, I don't have time to hear that, right? You know, I don't have time to come to your church or do a Bible study with you. I've got sports and, and games, and Sundays are my sleep-in days. Fridays I go out with the girls. You know, just, I, don't, I don't have time for that. And don't forget, just as an aside, Satan doesn't leave believers alone. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean he leaves you alone. Have you ever noticed how often you want to do something good, right? Something capital G good, something whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, that type of good. And then some pleasure, not necessarily illicit, presents itself, right? The timing is sometimes astonishing. You sit down to pray for someone who is sick in church, and then it's like, oh, well, first just a few hours of YouTube. Just because we're believers doesn't mean Satan expends no effort on trying to blind us. Jesus said that false prophets that Satan would raise up would try to deceive, even if possible, the elect. So Satan distracts. He distracts with alternative pleasures. He also demeans. He demeans with the mockery of the world. In the West, at least, if a Christian is portrayed in a television show or a movie, they are almost inevitably horribly wicked or unfathomably dim-witted and slow. Christians are stupid. Christians are simple and ignorant. Christians are hypocrites. They believe in fairy tales. They are responsible for bigotry and bloodshed, a danger to marginalized communities. Christians are cultural refuse. These insults are, of course, no more rational than when all the kids on the playground designate one child as having cooties, and then you shaming everyone into ostracizing the singled-out child just by way of shouting loud enough. And as a child, you might not even have had a concept of what a cootie is or why you should care or have any other predisposition against the child for whom was targeted the ridicule. And yet the mockery of the group was enough for you to keep your distance. Though we grow up physically, the same tactic, unfortunately, still holds much sway with adults. Satan has done a very good job of making it an uphill battle just to get the gospel even a cursory hearing sometimes. For no reason other than Christians are regularly ridiculed in culture with wild caricatures and half-truths. Satan also likes to dilute the gospel with the poison of false teaching. If distract and demean doesn't work, you can always dilute, mix into the gospel false promises of wealth and earthly glory, add in some man-made rules that give you a sense that you can earn your salvation and feel good about yourself, prop you up with delusions of self-righteousness, just a, a little bit of dirt is in a glass is enough to muddy clear water, make it impossible to see anything. Satan disillusions with suffering. Throw enough pain at people to make them doubt the goodness of God. If the world isn't good, then how can its creator be? How can God, who called his creation good, be anything but a liar in a world of so much suffering? And Satan has lots of ways that he blinds people blinds people who are already unbelievers. He distracts, demeans, dilutes, disillusions. 
In our sin, we are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. We are morally, culpably blind, willfully blind, blind by choice. And then Satan comes along and he blinds us some more. Right? Faced with the truth of our sin and God's holiness and the person of Jesus Christ, we gouged out our own eyes so that we don't have to face the evidence before us. But then Satan comes and he puts a burlap sack over our heads to make sure that we never see the truth. And truly, that might seem like a very bleak situation. But Satan's activity, the fact that he goes about this activity, actually betrays the fact that there is great hope. I mean, think about it. Why does Satan do what he does? Why put a burlap sack over the head of someone who's already gouged out their own eyes? Why blind the eyes of the unbeliever? They're already an unbeliever. Because Satan knows Jesus gives sight to the blind. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Jesus said he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of supernatural sight. He said at the synagogue, at the very beginning of his ministry, remember, he, he had the Isaiah scroll and he read from it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Paul was blind. Paul, the writer of 2 Corinthians, he was blind. This metaphor was not just a metaphor for Paul. It was actually a vivid object lesson that he would never forget. You remember when Paul was converted in Acts 9, right? The risen Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And then what happened afterwards? He became literally physically blind. For three days, Paul could see nothing. Then God sends Ananias to him. And when Ananias arrived, he lays his hands on Paul's eyes and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Why did God do that? Why did he let Paul experience literal blindness for three days before filling him with the Holy Spirit? Why did he make Paul... Paul physically blind before or, or in the process of converting him. It was a vivid object lesson. Paul, this transformation from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, this is a little bit like what is happening to you spiritually right now. You now have new spiritual sight. Never forget that before Jesus, you were blind, Paul. You were blind. You couldn't see We're all blind. We are all dying in our sin, unable to see Jesus. So I don't think Paul is saying in verse 3, don't worry if some reject the gospel. They are the perishing people, and we don't need to worry about them. They're the reprobates. We know they're all destined for hell. I don't think Paul's talking about ultimate destiny here. He's emphasizing one's current state if they are in their unbelief. Yes, There is an eventual destiny for anyone who persists in their rejection of Jesus until the end. But Paul does not consign anyone who rejects the gospel at the first hearing to hell. 
Paul believes the light of the gospel can overcome our blindness. Paul believes in a light so bright that even gouged out eyes will be made to see. I mean, after all, Paul grounds all this in verse 1 as being a result of mercy. Look backwards. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul says, everything I'm about to say, I say in light of the fact that we have received this by mercy, by not deserving it ourselves, not by being wiser, not by being more spiritually discerning, but only on the basis of totally unmerited favor from God was Paul saved and given this ministry. The same goes for us. If anyone is here believing in Jesus Christ, this, this very morning, this is not because you are better than your neighbor, not because you are smarter, not because you're more loving or more spiritual or more anything else. It is not because you had a keen spiritual eye. Your eyes were just as self-mutilated as anyone else's. We are here because of the mercy of God. And therefore, in light of that foundation, that foundational truth that the gospel is given by mercy, Paul argues for faithfulness to the gospel preached purely. Because even in the case of those who are blind, as we all once were, the gospel can save. Satan's blinding power, yea, even our own cold-hearted unbelief, can be overcome by the light of the gospel. The gospel is like a, a ray so powerful it can burn through the sack that Satan has placed over heads. It shines so brightly, so wonderfully, that it can fill empty sockets. It can reattach retina. And that was Paul's mission, after all, as recounted in Acts 26, when Jesus confronted the hardened unbeliever Paul on the Damascus road, he said to him, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And earlier in 2 Corinthians three sixteen, when Paul first introduced the whole metaphor of eyes being veiled from the gospel, he said, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil, the blindness, all the distractions, all the fear of the world, all the additives of false teaching can be stripped away when one looks at the real Jesus. But in order for that to happen, it is the real Jesus who has to be preached. You have to see the same Lord that Paul saw on the Damascus Road, the Jesus of the Scriptures, the Jesus of the Bible. That's why Paul says in verse 2, because of the gospel is of mercy, because it's of mercy, not of merit, that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Paul's point is that if the gospel was not of mercy, if it wasn't a miraculous mercy of opening blind eyes, then he might have engaged in disgraceful, underhanded ways to try to win converts. If the gospel was something other than a supernatural gift, maybe Paul would have been tempted to whatever it took to superficially win a convert, you know, whatever it takes. But because Paul was depending on the mercy of God, he refused to adulterate the message. He refused to change the gospel, either by adding to it, you know, maybe with laws, superficial rules to give people a greater sense of accomplishment or merit, maybe more controllable spiritual powers in the form of angels, other intermediaries that you can pray and worship, 
Like saints, they're more pliable than God, more approachable. Maybe you add promises of earthly prosperity that the gospel doesn't come with. There are all sorts of things that we can add to the Christian faith in order to make it more appealing. If we do that, we're just playing into Satan's hands, helping him sow the sacks for heads. Or we can tamper with the gospel by subtracting from it, trying to downplay the parts that may be offensive. Whether it's maybe the utter hopeless state of men apart from Christ, or the exclusivity of Jesus, or the very idea of an absolute moral standard and final judgment as defined by Jesus Christ, God himself. The gospel will evoke lots of different responses from spiritually blind people because our, our hearts are, are varied in the manifestations of sin. Right? Satan is varied over the sacks he likes to put over people's heads. But no matter what an individual group or culture or, or person may find offensive in the message of Jesus Christ, nothing can be edited out of it. Paul will fall into neither trap. He will not add to the gospel to make it more appealing. He will not subtract to it to make it less offensive. He will not tamper with the word of God. And in contrast, he says at the end of verse 2, rather by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So there's two, two ways to do ministry here. You can tamper with God's word, or you can state the truth openly for all to hear. And it is by open statement of the truth that Paul and his fellow workers uh, commend themselves. Paul is playfully citing one of the criticisms that his opponents have leveled at him. We'll see that flushed out more when we get to the last three chapters of the book. They were all saying Paul was a glory seeker. But the only way Paul commended himself was by stating the truth openly. That truth is defined in verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The way Paul commended himself was by an open statement of the truth. And the truth was not anything about Paul, but it was about Jesus Christ as Lord. That Jesus is Lord of history, Lord of this world. That Jesus has all rights to you. That in Jesus there is the only hope of forgiveness of sins. Paul proclaimed Jesus. By extension, that makes Paul a servant of the Corinthians on behalf of Jesus. And don't, don't lose the, the reason Paul mentions explicitly that he preaches Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at verse 6. For, because, I preach Jesus Christ as Lord because God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is not just that God revealed to him personally that Jesus was Lord. He goes one step further. Paul evokes the creation account. He goes right back to Genesis, as we read, where God spoke, literally spoke light into existence. Paul is very intentionally emphasizing, citing God's sovereign, creative power. He spoke all things into existence. I mean, he spoke into existence the mountains that so many people die scaling. Right? The, the depths of the sea that we have never even visited. Those dark deeps that house creatures that would give us all nightmares. Right? He, he spoke the whole animal kingdom into existence. The far-reaching reaches of the expanding universe. Objects so massive that they're actually unintelligible to us. The mystery of the quantum level of creation with things so small and fast that we can never really see them. 
The colors, blues, greens, reds, all possible because of light, a thing so mysterious that we don't really understand what it is or how it works. All this was created at God's word. He spoke it into existence. Paul particularly cites light. God created light. He spoke it into existence. Light is so meaningful here because of its metaphorical weight. The same way that God caused literal, is it a wave, is it a particle, light, to shine at a word, he causes spiritual light to shine at a word. God does powerful, incomprehensible, creative work at conversion, in conversion. He turns statues into living beings. He replaces dead hearts with new ones. He breathes life into corpses. He opens the ears of the death. He gives sight to the blind. In verse 6, by citing Genesis 6, Paul emphasizes the supernatural aspect of his own conversion in order to highlight the supernatural aspect of all conversion. Paul's, his fellow workers, the Corinthians, ours. That, that's the tone of verse 6, right? God who, set, who said, let light shine out of darkness, he's shown in our own hearts. He, he, he did that. He's shown to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We who are blind, he's shown in our hearts. The point is, the reason Paul preaches Christ as Lord is because God does miracles. God grants conversion. He does supernatural surgery. He opens eyes. God saves. He can change people. He can give them the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? Don't, don't skip past that, that theologically packed phrase at the end of verse 6 and, and is parallel in verse 4. What Paul himself was shown supernaturally was the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Obviously, the same thing that Satan's trying to prevent people from seeing. In verse 4, he blinds people to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And you can hear the parallels, almost identical statements and basically an identical structure. And the parallels between the two statements and the context makes it clear. Paul's talking about the same thing here. But the slight differences between the two statements, the slight differences in phraseology are incredibly instructive, rich with implication for us. I mean, we, we, we see here in the interplay between verses 4 and 6, the gospel is Jesus-centered. It, it, it's Jesus-shaped. In both phrases, Paul is careful to emphasize that supernatural seeing comes from seeing Jesus. He uses very tangible phrases. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus. Christ is the very image of God. And these visual words are meant to cohere with all the seeing language in this passage. And, and, and the point is not that we have to have literally seen Jesus. The point is to spiritually understand Jesus, to, to see him in that sense, his character, his person, his mission, that is to understand God himself. To be confronted with Jesus is to be confronted with God. Paul elsewhere describes preaching as a means of seeing, metaphorically speaking. And he says to the Galatians, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He didn't mean that they were witnesses. The, the Galatians didn't see the crucifixion. They weren't present for that. That's why it has kind of that awkward phraseology. Jesus was portrayed as crucified before your eyes. He means that through the preaching of the gospel, you saw Jesus spiritually with the eyes of your heart. 
And to see Jesus is to see God. To understand Jesus in the preaching of the gospel is to understand God. And we see here that Jesus' glory is God's glory. I mean, what, what a staggering thing to say. To be able to describe the glory of the gospel as Christ's glory. Christ possesses his. He owns it. The glory of the gospel belongs to Jesus. The same glory that belongs to God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, belongs also to Jesus. So, that, so much so that you can interchange those phrases. The gospel is the light of God's glory. The gospel is the light of Christ's glory. And Paul's point in verse 6 is that God can and does shine this light for blind people to see. This is a supernatural work of God. God is the one who converts. Restoring spiritual sight is a miracle, same as restoring physical sight. Shining spiritual light is a miracle, just as the creation of light at the very beginning of the universe was a miracle. Only God can shine this light on us. And as we have seen, he does it through seeing Jesus. So, kind of paradoxically, we're blind. We've got a bag over our heads. We're blinded to Jesus. And yet still, still, if Jesus stands before us, we may yet see him because God does miracles. And Paul is faithful to preach the gospel. He wants us to be faithful to preach the gospel because even though people don't believe it, even though Satan has blinded them to it, they still might see and believe. God is pleased to do this miracle. He is pleased to show Jesus to blind people. And he does it through evangelism, through preaching, by using us. God invites us to participate in a miracle. Right? We, we, we read, Paul said, God said to Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was the means that God used to open eyes. God is pleased to use his people to crush and break the power of Satan and to heal sinners of spiritual blindness. So, concluding, God the Son, Jesus Christ, he is the perfect image of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of the Father. So if the light that can cure blindness is the light of Jesus' glory, Jesus, who is the very image of God, the very glory of God, the only hope for anyone, the only hope for people, the only hope for Elgin, is, and for people in their blindness, is to preach to them about Jesus, to make him center stage, to put him on display for others to see, even though we know they're blind. That's why Paul preaches Christ as Lord, not just because he himself was unblinded, but because by preaching Jesus Christ as Lord, unedited, unadulterated, that is the only way spiritual blindness will be cured. People have to see Jesus. Satan wants to distract from Jesus. There are a lot of things that can distract us in church life, away from Jesus. And we must never, we must never let anything, however good, 
in and of itself become a distraction from the message with, with, with which we have been entrusted that can actually open eyes. Jesus Christ, the very glory of God. We must never slip into letting ourselves become the message. Our tastes, our preferences, our lifestyles, etc., I mean, it doesn't mean evangelism won't involve sharing your own story. It doesn't mean we won't have wisdom to share with others, areas where we're strong, someone is weak. But oh, oh, how we must guard against slipping ourselves, our lifestyles, our choices and preferences into the heart of the message. You are not the standard of holiness. But Jesus was holy in all that he did. He was holy as the Father was holy. Your understanding of God's word is not ultimate. But Jesus perfectly comprehended and understood every jot and tittle of written revelation because Jesus was the Word. Your wisdom is not complete, but Jesus is the very wisdom of God. You cannot grant anyone forgiveness for sins. Your blood has no effect. But Jesus' blood was a perfect atoning sacrifice that can genuinely wash even the dirtiest sinner. Whatever else we do, we must point people to Jesus. As Paul said to Timothy, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to, see, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do their, his will. We preach Christ and stay faithful to preaching an unaltered, unedited Jesus, patiently enduring evil, not quarreling, being gentle. I mean, we will experience evil that will try to pressure us into editing and altering the Jesus of the Bible. And we will be tempted to harshness and meaningless quarrels that distract but we are called to endure evil, to avoid those distractions, and preach Christ because God may perhaps grant some of our audience repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. They may come to their senses. They may escape the snare of the devil. So, Grace Covenant Baptist Church, in the face, in the presence of the God of this age, blinding the hearts and minds of the world around us, we are to make ourselves servants we are to openly and plainly preach the Jesus Christ of Scripture, real, unedited, His life, death, resurrection, His Lordship, not because we can convert through winsomeness or cleverness or persuasiveness, but because God, through power and glory and shining, can make blind people see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for shining the light of the gospel into our own hearts. And we do ask that if there are any here who do not yet see Jesus, that you would help them even now to see, that you would open eyes, that you would grant the miracle of conversion. And we ask that you would help our church to be faithful to the ministry that you have entrusted to us, that we would remember it is all of mercy, that we would never be tempted to edit or, or, or result to tampering with your word but instead that we would confidently proclaim it in the hopes that you would save and change and work. Grant us to, be, to patiently endure evil, to be gentle and not quarrelsome,
to serve the gospel of your Son. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen.